This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Oh, 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 oh. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. Today we begin in 1964 at the Sands. Four years after the onstage inception of the Rat Pack, Dean Martin is still headlining at the casino's Copa Club. But his act has become codified, maybe even calcified. Dino at the Sands, a bootleg recording of an average show at the casino, reveals that he was still modifying the lyrics to standard songs. Cause a kid or two I can always make up. Cause with my genie, it's instant pregnancy. And as long as it's free, well, then it is all right. Yeah, it's all right. It is all right with me. These spoof songs remained a draw for Vegas audiences because the Sands was the only place you could hear them. Dino didn't bring this kind of thing into the recording booth. He didn't need to, because his straight renditions of standards were selling better than ever. In the summer of 1964, 
Dean made his first recording of a song he had been singing for over a decade and a half. Everybody loves somebody. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. Everybody falls in love somehow. Something in your kiss just told me my sometime is now. This throwback song was given virtually the same opening orchestral and choral sing-along treatment by producer Jimmy Bowen as Dean's massive hit from a decade earlier, That's Amore. In the turbulent year of 1964, this nostalgia sold well. Everybody Loves Somebody became Dean's first top 40 single in six years. The charts that year had been dominated by the Beatles, who had arrived in America in February and by April had 12 singles on the Billboard Top 100 with a lock on the chart's top five spots. Dean still didn't believe rock and roll was here to stay. Nearly a decade earlier, he had managed to face the challenge posed by Elvis, and he didn't figure the Beatles to be a bigger threat. Dean promised his son, Dino Jr., a big Fab Four fan, that he'd, quote, knock your little pallies off the charts. Incredibly, on August 15th, Everybody Loves Somebody hit number one, knocking A Hard Day's Night down to third place. The album Everybody Loves Somebody became Dean's all-time bestseller, and over the next five years, he'd have a number of additional hit singles, including You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You and Somewhere There's a Someone. The threat of youth was thus vanquished yet again. The next few years for Dean Martin would largely consist of proving that there was still a place at the center of popular culture for a middle-aged man. Increasingly a dirty old man, even as that culture was undergoing massive changes. A new generation would transform what was considered entertainment, while the civil rights movement increasingly put pressure on the gatekeepers of movies, music, and television, to change what stardom looked like. Rather than change along with the times, Dean Martin doubled down on his now-practiced act as a sleazy boozer, finding a very large, very profitable niche as a port in the storm for an aging generation that felt uncomfortable with the transformations of the 1960s. After his triumph in the Of The Moment update of Golden Boy, Sammy should have been poised to capitalize on changing times better than Dean. Instead, he found himself in the midst of more conflict than ever. Unable to fit into the emerging Black pop culture mainstream, and yet still an outsider in the white entertainment world, 
Sammy found that he couldn't win. Desperate to belong somewhere, Sammy went looking for love in unlikely places, including from Richard Nixon. Join us, won't you, for the second to last installment of Sammy and Dino. Dean Martin made his last movie with serious artistic ambitions in 1963. Toys in the Attic, a Southern Gothic in which Dean was at best miscast, was a big money loser. After that, Dino showed little interest in challenging himself as an actor. Though he would appear in a few good westerns over the next decade or so, Martin's bread and butter as a movie star would now come from essentially playing himself. The high point of this phenomenon came the following year, when he mocked his persona in the masterpiece of vulgarity that was Billy Wilder's Kiss Me Stupid. In Kiss Me Stupid, Dean plays a singer named Dino, a Hollywood star and Las Vegas stalwart who gets entrapped in a scheme by two small-town songwriters who try to lure him into recording one of their compositions by using a sex worker, played by Kim Novak, as bait. The film featured Dino driving his own real-life custom Italian car away from the sands and its marquee with his actual name on it. The movie referenced his actual hit songs and the Rat Pack. At age 47, Dino was at the peak of his sexiness and comic timing and he funneled both into playing a version of himself as the world's biggest sleaze. Or maybe the second biggest, behind the slimy lyricist-slash-pimp played by Cliff Osmond. Kiss Me Stupid was a big flop. It was condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency, even after Wilder made cuts to a scene suggesting Dino paid one of the songwriter's wives for sex. The movie truly goes further than any American sex comedy of its moment. But I think it's ripe for reappraisal today, as a film that understands something about toxic masculinity, decades before that term was popularized. Starting as a vulgar farce and ending as a kind of wistful body swap dramedy, Kiss Me Stupid is ultimately asking questions like, What does a culture defined on the one hand by hetero male desire and on the other hand by capitalism do to women, especially women who are considered to be commodities? And is it even possible for female people to find any kind of real pleasure or satisfaction in a world that either sexually exploits them or takes them for granted? But nobody seems to have gotten any of that out of it in 1964. More than any previous film, people watched Kiss Me Stupid and believed that Dean Martin was playing himself. That, perhaps more than anything, sealed the deal on Martin's conviction that people didn't really want to see him act. They just wanted versions of his persona as an irresistible lover, a competent fighter, a casual crooner, and above all else, a prodigious drinker. Nobody questioned the authenticity of Dean's persona. No one in the audience knew that when they went out drinking, Dean didn't even try to keep up with Frank drink for drink, 
and would even discreetly dispose of every third cocktail he was handed by tossing it into a plant. No one knew how little Dean actually drank before or during a live show. When Dean was booked at the Sands, he'd wake up early in the morning to make sure he got in a round of golf before lunch. After golf, he'd have a sandwich and a beer. Then he'd spend the afternoon playing blackjack, which he did sober. He'd go to the health club, shower, shave, and have what he called a two-minute ultraviolet ray treatment, a massage, and a nap. Upon waking around 8 p.m., he'd have four cups of coffee with sugar while getting dressed. He'd then walk into the Copa room for his first show of the night with apple juice in his glass. Halfway through the show, his juice drained, he'd fill the glass with actual scotch, his first actual drop of alcohol for the night. After the show, he'd eat a big Italian meal with a few glasses of red wine. Then he'd do the second show of the night with apple juice in his glass. When that show was over, sometimes he'd go out with friends and drink scotch, but sometimes he'd sneak away early in order to go to bed and feel rested for his morning round of golf. So in the 1960s, when Dean Martin was cultivating a persona as America's drunkest singer, he rarely actually sang while drunk. And this information wasn't secret. It came from an interview Dean gave to the Saturday Evening Post. In other interviews, when asked about his so-called alcoholism, Dean would say things like, alcoholics don't get up at six in the morning to play golf. And yet, throughout the 60s, everyone seemed to want to believe that the act was real. Booze was so integral to Dino's persona that a bar anchored the set of The Dean Martin Show, a variety hour that premiered on NBC in September 1965 and ran every Thursday night at 10 o'clock for nearly a decade. A weekly TV show made Dean famous in a new way, and to a new generation, too young to have seen or even heard about Martin and Lewis. He'd tape the show on Sunday afternoons, bringing the whole family to the Burbank studio to watch, and sometimes guest on the show. At this point in his career, Dino was threading a very tiny needle, managing to present himself as a family man while also pushing the boundaries of bad taste and political incorrectness as far as he could. Almost right away, the network began pushing back. On October 20th, 1965, Dean used an Italian slur on air, which roughly translated to, up yours. NBC thereafter promised to censor all future uses of the Italian language on The Dean Martin Show. By this point, Dean had all but quit the Rat Pack, as Sammy had a year earlier, by calling it a joke that had run its course. In 1965, Frank and Dean would make Marriage on the Rocks, a dull comedy which would be their last movie together for nearly 20 years. Dean had been looking to go his own way for a while. A recording of a September 1963 Rat Pack show at the Sands, released as an album called The Rat Pack Live at the Sands, 
reveals a Dean who seems less willing to go along with the tone set by Sinatra than he was three years earlier. At one point, Frank seems to bully Dean into going along with a gay joke. Say, speaking of bars and, and, and all this kind of stuff, let me ask you a question. Yeah. How do you make a fruit cordial? <laughs> I asked you a question. Be nice to him, I oh, guess. Oh, come on. <laughs> Silly fool. A few minutes later, Dean makes a cross-dressing joke but at his own expense. What I'm trying to say to you is that every time you drink when you're on stage doing a performance, you expose yourself. <laughs> I didn't know I was doing that. You didn't know that? Ah, the worst I've ever done is maybe slip on a satin dress, you know. And then it was in the privacy of my own closet. What the hell? Audiences believed all the jokes about Dean's drinking. So... It could have been perceived as dangerous for him to joke about wearing a dress in 1963. But Dean didn't care. Frank made gay jokes to shore up his own masculinity. In a world that was rapidly changing, and you have to remember that to many older people, the Beatles seemed unacceptably androgynous, Frank's remaining audience liked him in part because he represented a time when gender and masculinity seemed simpler more cut and dried. Dean appealed to the same crowd, but the image of his masculinity was not something he showed insecurity about. Frank Sinatra's image as a tough guy, and whether or not being a tough guy was a good thing, became a subject of conversation after one night out in June 1966. Frank and Dean were joined by seven friends at the Polo Lounge, to celebrate Dean's 49th birthday. Hours into the party, after midnight, two businessmen named Franklin Fox and Fred Wiseman settled into a nearby table. At one point, Wiseman asked Frank to keep it down. They couldn't hear themselves speak. According to Fox, Sinatra's response included an anti-Semitic slur directed at Wiseman. Frank and his party then got up to leave, but after everyone else he was with had made it out the door, Frank came back and threw a telephone at Wiseman's head. By the time Dean caught up to Frank and dragged him out of there, Fred Wiseman was lying on the floor unconscious. Frank had fractured his skull. For three days, he was comatose and expected to die. But after cranial surgery, Wiseman began to recover. Knowing the Beverly Hills police wanted to speak to him about the incident, Sinatra went into hiding. That week, Sammy was asked about Frank's whereabouts by Dick Cavett. Do you know where your friend Frank Sinatra is? <laughs> no, I do not. I, uh, the last I heard, he was in London. Yeah. I wonder how he feels about this. He was subpoenaed, is that right? I don't know if he was subpoenaed or not. I don't know I, either. I, I don't want to... I do know that there was a subpoena out. I don't know if they ever caught him in terms of... No, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it's a snide remark. I mean, Cal I don't know whether they, whether they caught him in California or who they served, Mickey Rudin. I don't know. Yeah. I do know 
that I don't think that whatever the circumstances are, that he ran out on a subpoena. I don't believe that, because I know the man, and that's what they're trying to infer, that he ran away from it. I don't think he'd do that. That doesn't seem like his style. No, no. He'd walk in, 17, strong, you know. What do you want? You know. But I don't think he'd run out, man. He has never run in his life. So why would he run for this, you know? Dean also skipped town for Tahoe. He showed his loyalty to Frank by eventually calling the cops and telling them that he hadn't seen anything. The night of the incident, he had come home and told his daughter Dina, some drunk called us wops and Frank got mad. I told him, Frank, just let it go. Who cares? I call you wop and dago all the time, but he got mad anyway. Dina asked him if anyone had gotten hurt. And Dean told his daughter, I don't know. I don't know anything. There were other things coming between Frank and Dean. Sinatra was about to marry Mia Farrow, and after the wedding, he bizarrely returned to the sands to deliver a racist monologue in which he made jokes about giving Sammy and Mai a zebra print love seat, quote, so when they sit together, they won't be so conspicuous. This was after a joke Sinatra made about Davis, who he referred to as Smokey the Bear, not being able to join him on stage because he was busy working at his gas station in Watts. What makes these cracks even more painful is that they weren't even topical. This was in November 1966, six years after Sammy and Mai's wedding and over a year after the uprising in Watts. Frank was ridiculing his supposed friend for an audience of white tourists who he assumed wanted to lazily laugh at out-of-date racist stereotypes. For years, Sinatra had been riding on his reputation as an ally to African Americans, and he'd do things to legitimize that reputation going forward, such as opening up his home for a Black Panthers meeting in 1968. But he could also be patently racist on stage, as we've seen already. Attempting to play both sides, to make a difference that he believed in while also making money off of a presumably racist audience, he let Sammy fall under the bus. Sammy himself knew better than to accuse Frank of throwing him under. Okay. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. With the Rat Pack movie cycle over, Dean soon found another franchise that represented an easy, reliable paycheck. The Silencers, released in 1966, would be the first of four films Dean would star in as Matt Helm. Based on a series of novels about a secret agent, the movies repurposed Helm's adventures for Dino's persona resulting in a kind of tongue-in-cheek American spin on James Bond that today plays as an obvious predecessor of Austin Powers. If Austin Powers was played by a man who women really did throw themselves at in real life. That Martin's helm was transparently Dino with a supply of high-tech weaponry is highlighted in two aspects of the silencers, both of them musical in nature. Dean sings a number of songs in the film, but each one is heard on the soundtrack while we see Matt Helm doing something else. The songs play like Helm's inner monologue, or like the Dean Martin we know, commenting on the cheesy spectacle he's been asked to act in. In this scene, we hear Martin's voice on the soundtrack as we watch Helm silently drive his car with a ginger bombshell who may or may not be working for a terrorist organization called Big O, played by Stella Stevens, in the front seat. She seems like a nice sweet companion To have for a ride through this canyon But Big O or me, with which is she Mm, Side by side Here, he's singing altered lyrics to the 1927 standard Side by Side, which is something Dean Martin would do, and not necessarily something Matt Helm would do. That Dean Martin is a singer who exists in the world of the Matt Helm films is indicated by this tongue-in-cheek scene, also said in the car. Dean is still driving, and Stevens flips on the radio. I want some music. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you oh, can turn him off, he's terrible. The poster for the silencers promised girls, gags, and gadgets. 
and branded the movie as the best spy thriller of 1966. The series became a place to put some of the decade's most notorious starlets on display, from Anne Margaret to Sharon Tate. When Margot Robbie's Tate goes to that Westwood theater to see herself on screen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, she's watching the Matt Helm film The Wrecking Crew, which would conclude the franchise. The Matt Helm films gave a lot of women employment, though they were not exactly vehicles of female empowerment. On the one hand, The Silencers offers a showcase for the still stupendous talents of dancer Sid Charisse, who was then in her mid-40s, and Stella Stevens was given a chance to literally get down and dirty in physical comedy sequences that proved her to be at least the equal of Lucille Ball. But this movie also begins with two burlesque dancers stripping naked, and Martin is seen making out with five different scantily clad women before the plot even kicks in. The Matt Helm movies portray the sexual revolution through the eyes of middle-aged men. So as an all-you-can-eat, or maybe even more than you can eat, buffet. Dean Martin was certainly no revolutionary, He may have been an iconoclast in that he didn't like to be told what to do, but he was also staunchly anti-counterculture. This had its appeal as counter-programming to youth culture. In 1967, his TV show was the most watched in America. Already bored of it, Dean thought that if he asked for an enormous raise, NBC would balk and cancel the program. Instead, they agreed to pay him nearly $300,000 an episode, the equivalent of over $2 million an episode today. With a salary of $15 million a year in 1967 dollars, he became the highest paid star in American television history. But within a year, his popularity started to wane he'd have his last Hot 100 single in 1969. His second marriage was on the decline, too. Jeannie Martin gave an incredibly frank interview to Ladies Home Journal, in which she complained that her husband was, quote, calculating and an impersonal man. He's cool and completely withdrawn. The interviewer asked Jean if she would hypothetically, accept her husband having affairs in order to keep their home together. And she said, I do. I think that speaks for itself. There's an old country expression, I don't want to know. The thing I object to most is that he doesn't give more of himself to me. So when these other things come up, it hurts more because I don't get equal time. The truth is, I bore the hell out of Dean. I always bored him. Most women do. He's not a ladies' man. He's a man's man, and I like that about him. More than anything else, he prefers to be alone. Being with the children for more than 10 minutes bores him, too. The point is, Dean was not, and is not, nor will he ever be, the ideal husband. 
he gives the minimum amount. Even while airing her frustrations with Dean, Jean was firmly in control of her family. In 1969, Dina landed a role in a movie called Young Billy Young, starring Robert Mitchum. Mitchum was an old friend of her dad's who had just appeared in a Western called Five Card Stud with Dean a year earlier. On the set of Young Billy Young, 21-year-old Dina developed a crush on 52-year-old Mitch. After she filmed her small part, Dina went back to L.A. She called Mitchum, who was still working on location in Tucson, and told him she missed him. Mitchum said, Then come back, baby. You can stay in my place if you like. Dina and Mitchum proceeded to have an affair for about a week. Then Jean found out where her stepdaughter was and got her on the phone. Jean told Dina that she ought to come home. Now. Before her father found out. Dina, scared to death of that prospect, ended things with Mitchum and got right back to Los Angeles. Before that year was up, Dean and Jean would be through for once and for all. Amidst an affair with a Miss World contestant, Dean told Jean he wanted a divorce. Jean acquiesced, but released a statement that was pretty brutal. I married him knowing nothing about him, Jean said. I divorced him 23 years later, and I still know nothing about him. Now he can hide, which is what he does best. In Vegas, Dean took the stage and turned his divorce into another drunk joke. Jean was going to get to keep the house, Dino said, but he didn't mind. I could never find it anyway. Martin's popularity began to wane with his second divorce because America was forced to acknowledge that he wasn't really deep down a nice family man. His whole thing, the boozing, the harem of women he surrounded himself with in movies and on TV, the promotion of total escape from anything that really mattered, was only acceptable in America in the early 70s if consumers could pretend he wasn't really like that, that it was all the winking pose of a family man. When it came out that Dean actually preferred the company of much younger women to that of his wife, it caused the perception of him to curdle, just enough to have an impact. Certainly, by the time Dean and Jean's divorce was finalized in 1973, the cultural pendulum was beginning to swing towards prudishness. Porno chic, as it was dubbed by the New York Times, hit its peak in January of that year with the blockbuster success of Deep Throat. That was a sign for many that sexual liberation had gone too far. Of course, most women had never really been free of the male gaze or male sexual standards. In the 60s, Dean and his producers had been able to take advantage of the perception of an increasing sexual permissiveness. If the sexual revolution was not about increased sexual freedom for women, but increased sexual options for men, 
The Dean Martin show visualized this by surrounding a smirking Dino with a troupe of sexy female backup singers and dancers called the Gold Diggers. In the early 70s, as the women's movement was starting to have a mainstream impact, NBC decided that Dino's show was a little too politically incorrect. First, they insisted he remove the bar from the show's set. Then, there was pushback against the gold diggers. Dean got rid of his female backing troupe, only to replace them with four new singer-dancers, whom he named the Dingling Sisters. The incest jokes were profuse. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the Dingling Sisters, Michelle, Taffy, Lynn, and Tara. They're very close. In fact, last night when Michelle's boyfriend kissed her, Tara got a hickey. <laughs> Dingling Sisters. Immediately after this intro, the sisters, all dressed in skin-tight evening gowns slid up to their hips, began writhing on chairs while singing a breathy rendition of On the Good Ship Lollipop. Where the gold diggers had usually accompanied Dean's performances, surrounding the graying crooner with their youth and vitality, the dinglings performed without him, gyrating often bare midriffs in extended dance numbers, introed and outroed by Dino as a leering MC. That the culture was at least questioning this kind of burlesque was evident in April 1972, when Life magazine published a takedown of the Dean Martin show. Calling the weekly program, quote, anti-woman and anti-man too. Life's critics suggested that radical feminists should picket the next airing and added, I'll join them if they'll have me. When other TV critics stepped up to defend Dean, Readers wrote in to complain that he was a dirty old man and to accuse him of sexism and homophobia. In the 1972 season, the Dean Martin show's ratings dropped, and it fell out of the top 20 for the first time in its history. Dean didn't marry his Miss World. He didn't even date her for more than a few months. Instead, as soon as his divorce from Jean was finalized, 56-year-old Dean married a 24-year-old named Kathy Hahn. He vowed to one reporter that when his TV contract ended that year, he would go into hiding and just drink until he died. But he didn't. Instead, he signed a new contract to perform in Vegas at the MGM Grand, which he called the Megum. His routine had contracted. Instead of leisurely afternoons playing blackjack and rigorous pregame rituals in the health club, now he'd sit in his dressing room watching television until the last second before he'd have to take the stage. The announcer would announce, straight from the bar, Dean Martin. And Dean Martin would switch off the Mary Tyler Moore show and stumble on. Dean's marriage to Kathy Hahn lasted three years. And during that time, Martin became virtually estranged from his adult kids. By now, 
those kids understood that when it came to their dad, they had to take what they could get. There is no way that my father is going to sit down and open up, Dino Jr., who now went by Dean Paul, said in an interview. He doesn't do that for his closest friends. He never really tells you what he feels or what he's thinking. I don't know him very well at all. A year and a half after Golden Boy closed on Broadway, with civil unrest in so many major cities and a good deal of the white population suddenly interested in trying to understand why Black people were so angry, Hilly Elkins believed there was a market for a show that expressed that anger through song and dance, sexy entertainment. When they had launched Golden Boy in 1964, they had been ahead of the cultural curve. When Sammy went back to Vegas and nightclubs after Broadway in 1966, 1967, it looked like he was regressing. Vegas was now more hospitable than it had been. At Sammy's urging, Jack and Tratter had even started hiring some black employees at the Sands. But Sammy was still modeling himself after Frank Sinatra who was not considered cool by young people in 1968. Even Mia Farrow would move on that year. The Black is Beautiful movement in fashion and photography, which celebrated Black women with darker skin and natural hair, often worn in gloriously large afros, had only become more mainstream since Golden Boy had closed on Broadway. You may remember from our previous episode that Lola Falana's ab-flaunting athleisure costume had been controversial back in 1964. She got away with wearing that body-conscious costume every night on the Great White Way, in part because her hair was styled in a straightened pixie cut. That was appropriate for the pre-integration Broadway of 1964, but now it was 1968. Sammy and Hilly began retooling Golden Boy to fit with the new times. They planned to take the show on the road, starting in the northern city that was amongst the hottest hotbeds of racial tension, Chicago. It was the closest Sammy could get to the center of the storm without taking on the South, which he was more afraid than ever to do. In the late 60s, Sammy seemed more restless than ever. Certainly, Mai had felt it. He was never home. And she was always home. And that was a problem. Sammy had fallen in love with Mai's on-screen image as a blonde femme fatale. He had thought he was plucking a movie star off the screen and making her his wife. He had wanted to be a celebrity power couple. But Mai didn't care about stardom. She wanted a real marriage, and she wanted to be a full-time mom. She didn't like Sammy's after-hours scene, and she wasn't impressed or starstruck by other famous people the way Sammy was. She hated the way Sammy quote-unquote kowtowed to Sinatra, and she told him so. Sammy, I love you, she'd say, but I hate our life. 
His infidelities didn't help, but eventually it became clear that Sammy and Mai didn't want the same things. She packed up the kids and left him, which left him free to redefine his social life yet again. As they were workshopping the new golden boy in the spring of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis. For years, Sammy had been reticent to travel down south because he thought this might happen to him. And yet, several times he had given his time and his celebrity to aid King's cause, such as at the March Against Fear in 1966, when Sammy came down to Mississippi and, standing alongside King, with no musical accompaniment, sang, What kind of fool am I? What kind of fool In the hours after news spread of King's murder, a shell-shocked Sammy appeared on a number of national TV shows, asking viewers to remember King's message of nonviolence. He had been scheduled to sing Talk to the Animals, a song from Dr. Doolittle, at the Oscars a few days later, and he announced that he would not attend. I certainly think any black man should not appear, Sammy said. I find it morally incongruous to sing Talk to the Animals while the man who could make a better world for my children is lying in state. The ceremony was subsequently postponed, and Sammy attended King's Memorial, and then went to Los Angeles and accepted the Oscar for the Dr. Doolittle song. Sammy appeared at the Academy Awards in a black Nehru jacket, his hair just starting to grow out into a tight afro. Around this time, he gave an interview in which he explained his new look. So when people say to me, did you change your hair because of the movement? I say, no. I changed my hair because it became a pain to straighten it all the time, and this <laughs> yeah. is it. The one thing that I did because of the movement is I, I promised I would not wear Western clothes. I promised myself. That was my own commitment to myself. Now, people say they put me down. Well, what's the, you know, uh, part of the, the black bourgeois and the white society say, what is he trying to do with the Nehru suits and his ring on his finger? That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to disturb him, shake him up. Don't let him pigeonhole me, man, because I will not allow myself as a black individual to be pigeonholed. In this climate, the Golden Boy team felt all the more urgency to take a revamped version of their show to Chicago, a city in which Mayor Richard Daley had all but declared war on the city's black population, which included a range of activists, from Jesse Jackson to the Black Panthers, as well as the Blackstone Rangers, a gang whose activities ranged from violent crime to community programs, and who had acted as bodyguards for King. The Rangers invited Sammy to participate in their initiation ritual. He was honored, and then he showed up, and discovered that the initiation involved letting each member of the Rangers punch him in the chest. Sammy felt that the black radicals who made him a literal punching bag didn't understand that he wasn't universally loved by white people either. At performances of Golden Boy in Chicago, white audiences sometimes booed him. 
After Chicago, Golden Boy moved to London. Sammy loved it there, especially in the late 60s, when he was able to hang out with rock stars like Jimi Hendrix and Mama Cass, dress like a Victorian dandy, and party in all of the druggy discos without raising eyebrows. He went out every night. He couldn't bear to spend a night alone. He began dating Altaviz Gore, who played his sister in Golden Boy. When Sammy and Alto first met at her tryout for the Chicago show, Sammy had asked her what she thought of the city. Alto responded, I got arrested going out on a date with a white guy. The cops thought I was a hooker and they picked me up. This made Sammy laugh. He cracked, that's what we get for not sticking together. They returned to the U.S. together with matching afros. As much as he was newly committed to some kind of activism, some kind of identification with the younger generation that was pushing for social change, and to be identified as African-American or Black, terms that had previously been foreign or anathema, Sammy couldn't resist joking about all of the above for white audiences. He'd appear on any talk show that would have him, frequently doubling over in laughter when the white hosts would make his race, religion, fashion, or activism the butt of the joke. He began appearing regularly on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, which skewered the counterculture from an almost entirely white perspective. One of Sammy's recurring skits was called Here Come the Judge. Better give him a nudge. Everybody look alive, cause here comes the judge. <laughs> Order the court, the right honorable Samuel Davis Jr. presiding. <laughs> I find you guilty of sneaking up behind the late Mr. Walters and stabbing him in the back. But uh, come here, come here, come here. If if I hadn't, see, he would have caught you with his wife. Get it? Due to extenuating circumstances, I reduced the charge to following too closely. <laughs> 30 days suspended sentence. You are free to leave the courtroom anytime you want. Bless Especially within the context of the barely integrated laugh-in, Sammy's judge caricature, performed with wide minstrel eyes and spoken in a put-on dialect, became another strike against him in the minds of some African-American viewers. Years later, a guy named Albert Murray took on the extremely arduous task of helping Sammy's final wife, Altavise, sort out Sammy's estate. Murray took this on, despite having grown up rolling his eyes at Sammy. Murray's whole family, including his father, an actual Brooklyn criminal court judge and previously a Sammy fan, had been offended by Sammy's judge, which they felt turned the senior Murray's very real accomplishments into a minstrel show. In the late 1960s and early 70s, there were starting to be real parts for Black performers in Hollywood. In 1967, Sidney Poitier appeared in two Best Picture nominees, and was considered to be one of the most bankable performers in movies. In 1972, Poitier would start directing, 
and thus was in a real position of power when it came to influencing how black people were represented in movies. Sammy would never have that power, and his movie career would never really take off. For too much of the 60s, he was busy on Broadway or playing sidekicks in Frank Sinatra movies. And so he found himself at the end of the decade frustrated that he didn't have the career Poitier had. Sammy wanted to be considered for straight acting roles. He also wanted to direct. Sammy tried to sell a biopic about a black jockey, but by that point, Hollywood was deep into the black exploitation era and didn't think an earnest film about black excellence would make money. Such was a typical catch-22 for Sammy Davis Jr. His friends and advisors ranged from Quincy Jones to Sidney Poitier to Jesse Jackson, and all of them could be prone to lecturing him on being a good role model for young Black America. But ever in need of making a living, Sammy was dependent on the white establishment to open doors and pay checks. Now, it wasn't just the Black newspapers that attacked him for this. One night, Sammy's sometime girlfriend Lola Falana went to a nightclub where comedian Red Fox was performing. From the stage, Fox pointed out Falana and told the crowd about her relationship with Davis. Fox then called Sammy, quote, a white guy in black skin. Sammy also felt his supposed friends were patronizing him, and he bristled at the idea that they thought they could tell him what to do. Occasionally, he lashed out, trying to prove that he was his own man. One example of that led to his marriage to Altavis Gore. Jackson was one of a number of Sammy's friends who were encouraging him to marry again and to choose a black spouse, even as he seemed to prefer spending time with white actresses like Jean Seberg and Romy Schneider. Of Sammy's known black girlfriends, it seemed most likely that he'd marry Lola Falana. But Sammy zigged instead of zagged, instead proposing to Alto. One of his biographers suggested Sammy chose Altavis because he knew he could dominate her. He knew she wouldn't be able to stop him from his social and sexual pursuits outside of the marriage. Unlike so many people in his life, she wouldn't tell him what to do. The marriage took place at the Philadelphia City Hall one day in 1970, when a golf tournament Sammy had been scheduled to participate in was rained out. They moved into Sammy's new mansion in Beverly Hills, which had previously belonged to Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Finally, Sammy had hooked up with a woman who shared his interests, namely stardom and spending. One week, Alto spent $5,200 on groceries. Even with the copious amounts of lobster and caviar their household consumed, this was hard to explain in the early 70s. This would be roughly $34,000 today on groceries. Sammy commented, 
almost proud of her. Sammy had told Alto from the start that he couldn't be faithful to her. But now it was the 70s, which meant that non-monogamy didn't have to look like furtive affairs on the road. At Sammy's urging, the couple began swinging. At her husband's direction, Alto had sex with other women and other men. She became pregnant twice, and twice Sammy insisted she have abortions. The same month that Sammy married Alto, he unveiled what he hoped would be a new phase of his recording career as an artist for Motown. Just take a look at you and me. How we do blind see. Do we simply just turn our heads? Then look the other way, Dave. We're good at looking at it the other way. That's a clip from a song called In the Ghetto, which was track seven on Sammy's first, last, and only Motown album, Something for Everyone, released in 1970. This song had been popularized a year earlier by Elvis Presley. Take a look at you and me. Are we too blind to see? Do we simply turn our heads and look the other way? Well, the world turns. And a hungry little boy with a runny nose plays in the street as a cold wind blows in the ghetto. The Elvis version, which had been key to his recent comeback, had not included awkward, almost inscrutable spoken word, the way Sammy's version did. This was just one example of how Sammy's Motown album seemed ill-advised. On the cover of the record, Sammy presented what he hoped would be his new image for the 70s, dressed in a white shroud like a cult leader, he was surrounded by two dozen women in what looked like a suburban living room. Most of the black women wore afros. Most of the white women were blonde. If the variety didn't exactly represent something for everyone, it was something for both sides of Sammy. Barry Gordy had lured Davis to his landmark Detroit label, hoping to cash in on his star power. But Motown and Sammy didn't know what to do with one another. Our salespeople say Sammy doesn't have the Motown sound, Gordy told Sammy's business partner, Cy Marsh. Marsh responded, fuck the Motown sound. What about the Sammy sound? No one seemed to know what the Sammy sound should be in the 70s. In 1972, he'd release an album called Now. It included covers of the 1968 hit MacArthur Park, the theme from Shaft, a song from the 1925 musical No No Nanette, and a new track called I'm Over 25, But You Can Trust Me, in which Sammy presented himself as a mentor 
to a young generation of black activists. But in my own way, I tried to keep the torch alive because I always felt that you, who are under 25, would pick up where I faltered and go on a step or two. And when someone calls your brother, maybe this time it will be true. Now, also included a song that would become the biggest hit of Sammy's career. And an albatross that only increased his self-loathing. Sweet chocolate, chocolate malt, candy, gumdrops, anything you want. You've come to the right man because I'm the candy man. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. Cover it with chocolate and a miracle or two. The candy man. The candy man. This is The Candyman. This song was introduced in the 1970 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, for which it had been co-written by Leslie Bricuse, whose songwriting Oscar for Dr. Doolittle Sammy had accepted in 1968. But Sammy only recorded this song thanks to Mike Curb, a young white producer who had worked with the Osmonds, and for the past few years, had served as a president of MGM Records. Curb, who was the son of an FBI agent who worked in Compton, had assembled a crew of gospel singers, which he called the Congregation. Curb's Congregation had recorded Candyman, but the song needed something else. Curb approached Sammy about singing the lead. Sammy recognized Candyman as the slice of cheese that it is, or as he put it, white bread. But Curb won him over by reminding him of Young at Heart, a song Sinatra had recorded with a chorus of kids. If Frank sang a kid's song, shouldn't Sammy sing one too? Sammy went into the booth and, holding his nose, did only one take of the vocal. But Curb spun that single take into gold. Literally. In June 1972, the single became Sammy's first number one on the Billboard charts, and his first top ten single since Something's Gotta Give in 1957, and finally, his first gold record. It would also be Sammy's last hit single, but he didn't know that yet. In the meantime, Candyman worked wonders on Sammy's ability to tour and thus to make money, at least in the short term. While Candyman was working its way up the charts, Sammy appeared on the number one TV show in America, All in the Family, created by lifelong progressive activist Norman Lear, focused on the home life of Archie Bunker, a 50-something blue-collar racist, sexist, and homophobe whose prejudices are constantly coming into conflict with 70s America, often represented by his daughter, played by Sally Struthers, and her lefty husband, played by Rob Reiner. 
The February 19, 1972 episode of All in the Family revolved around Bunker's chance encounter with Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy, playing himself, leaves his briefcase in Archie's cab and shows up at the Bunker residence looking for it. Because Archie had given it to the cab company's lost and found, Sammy is forced to wait with the Bunkers until it can be returned to him. The episode is scripted, but the spectacle of Sammy grinning at and good-naturedly joking with a white man who idolizes celebrity but can't stop himself from spouting racist bile feels like a glimpse into Sammy's real life. What was Archie Bunker, if not a composite of the aging working-class white American, who, as late as 1972, still thought that the Rat Pack was the epitome of cool, and that loving Sammy Davis meant that they couldn't possibly be racist. Well, Mr. Davis, I want to tell you, it's a real honor to have you in our home. Thank you. Breaking bread with us this way. I was just saying to my family before you come in, I said, Sammy Davis Jr. is maybe the greatest credit to his race. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure you've done good for yours, too. <laughs> I try. Here we are. Ah, yeah. oh, thank you, Mrs. This episode of television is absolutely insane. It's really difficult to square all in the family with our 2021 idea of a productive conversation about race. Archie Bunker's prejudice, which is portrayed as almost unconscious, is the butt of most of the jokes in this episode, some made by Sammy. Now, no prejudice intended, but, you know, I always check with the Bible on these here things. Oh, yeah. I think that, I mean, if God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. But look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. Well, you must have told him where we were because somebody came and got it. At the same time, the show normalizes Bunker's racism by putting so much of it on screen. For instance, in this scene, while he's talking... Archie puts the glass he's been drinking from down on a table between he and Sammy. And not only the greatest entertainer in the world, but a man who proves that there's good and bad in all races. Right, right. Here, Sammy picks up Archie's glass and drinks from it. I'll drink to that. <laughs> and to friendship. Ah, uh, you hear that? Friendship, drink it up myself. Yeah. Sammy hands the glass back to Archie, who begins to put it to his lips, and then stops. <laughs> the studio audience explodes while watching Carol O'Connor play Archie's revulsion, and then his shame upon realizing that major celebrity Sammy Davis Jr. watched him balk rather than let both of their lips touch the same glass. It's also worth noting that Sammy is not the only black person in the scene. The character Lionel Jefferson, of the family who live next door to the bunkers before they move on up to their own show, is sitting right there. Archie doesn't ever, at any point that follows in the episode, lift that glass up to his lips. 
This issue comes full circle with the episode's climax, in which, while posing for a photo with Archie, Sammy plants a big kiss on his cheek. This kiss challenged existing taboos regarding both race and sexuality, and it became a kind of inkblot that anyone on any side of the cultural and racial divide could interpret the way they wanted to and use to foment panic that served their needs. Somehow, Sammy had starred in one of the most watched TV shows of the year, and it only increased his hate mail. The backlash to Sammy's appearance on All in the Family would seem to help explain the political turn that his life took in the coming years. For over a decade, Sammy had tried to be a good liberal. Sure, he had been banished by JFK, but he had been close to Bobby Kennedy. But now Bobby was gone, and Sammy's collaboration with Norman Lear had backfired. Meanwhile, Sammy was being heavily courted by the Republicans, particularly President Richard Nixon. In the run-up to the 1972 election, in which Nixon would be re-elected by a landslide, Sammy somehow became for JFK's old opponent what Frank Sinatra had been for JFK. At Nixon's request, Sammy became an ambassador to UNICEF. At Nixon's invitation, Sammy went to Vietnam to perform for the troops, but also to try to gather intel as to why a disproportionate number of black servicemen were being cited for drug use compared to their white counterparts. Predictably, at least in hindsight, the 20-year-old kids Sammy encountered in Vietnam didn't see him as a trustworthy confidant. They saw him as an emissary of an establishment that didn't care if they lived or died. Sammy came back and bragged that he had given a report from Vietnam directly to the president. He said that a number of privates had given him the phone numbers of their family members and asked him to call and tell them that their kid was doing okay. But Sammy's highest profile and most damaging intersection with Nixon came at the 1972 Republican convention in Miami. Mike Kerb, producer of Candyman and a Republican, had arranged with Nixon's camp to have Sammy presented with his gold record for the single during the convention. Sammy was flown to Miami on a private jet, given rooms at the Playboy Club, and seated at the convention in the Nixon family's private box. This was so far above any special treatment that any Democrat politician had ever offered him that no wonder Sammy felt like he had finally found a comfortable seat at the table in the center of American power. But Sammy was naive. He believed Nixon's lip service about the Black community. He didn't fully understand why so much of that community hated Nixon, or at least distrusted him. He didn't get into the nitty-gritty of Nixon's policies, like his drive to end busing for Black students. He didn't know or didn't care that Nixon had tried to nominate two men with histories of white supremacist and or anti-civil rights views to the Supreme Court. He bought into the idea that aligning himself with the most powerful man in America 
meant that his race no longer mattered, and that if the Nixon camp was so welcoming to Sammy, that must mean that they wanted to knock down barriers for all Black people. He didn't realize he was being used, just as Frank hadn't realized the extent to which he was being exploited by the Kennedys. But Frank could walk away from his encounter with presidential politics unscathed. For Sammy, it wouldn't be so easy. Not after what happened at the convention. It was the last night, the night Nixon accepted his party's nomination. On a different stage, Sammy was performing for something called the Republican Youth Rally. After accepting the nomination, Nixon made a surprise appearance on stage with Sammy. Sweaty from singing and dancing, his shirt open to his waist, Sammy wrapped his arms around the Republican president. Cameras clicked, and the image that went around the world showed little Sammy, a foot shorter than Nixon, holding on as if for dear life while the president grinned. It was not a good look. And Nixon made it worse by referencing the criticism that Sammy was a sellout for being there. You aren't gonna buy Sammy Davis Jr. by inviting him to the White House, Nixon told his adoring fans. Maybe it goes without saying, but Dean Martin would never have done this. If the question is why he would never have done this, or why Sammy did, there are a lot of answers. Race is part of it, but that part of it is more complicated than you might think. This didn't happen to Sammy just because he was Black, and it didn't not happen to Dean because he was white. Dean wouldn't have gone there, not with Nixon, and not with the Kennedys or any politician, because Dean had a deep-rooted understanding of himself as an outsider. He believed that Italians would never really be accepted in the inner circles of American power. And he was fine with that. To Dean, power meant having enough money to be able to say no to anything he didn't want to do. If anything was important to Dean, it was to never have to rely on anyone else for financial reasons ever again. Dean put his money in relatively safe places, like homes and undeveloped land. Once he had financial security, he no longer cared what anyone thought of him. Sammy would never get to that place. Sammy's response to feeling like an outsider was to try, all his life, to get inside. His desperation for acceptance became, for many observers, unattractive. The Republicans were smart enough to use it, and it didn't end with the convention or the photo of the hug. When Sammy returned to Vegas from Miami, he brought Donald Rumsfeld, then one of Nixon's closest advisors, with him. 
While Sammy and Alto and Rumsfeld and his wife Joyce were sipping drinks by the pool in the desert, back in L.A., Sammy's secretary was opening sacks of mail, some calling the man who had hugged Nixon an N-word, others calling him an Uncle Tom. Amongst many Black people, the hug made Sammy persona non grata. Eartha Kitt confronted him on a flight. Poitier and Belafonte simply stopped returning his calls. Sammy claimed that Jesse Jackson had advised him that it was a good idea to get close to Nixon, that it could only help the African-American cause if one African-American had a private audience with the president. But then, when Sammy appeared on stage at a gathering of Jackson's push organization, the crowd booed him. Sammy attempted to win over his haters. Disagree, if you will, with my politics. Good, 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 but I will not allow anyone to take away the fact that I am black. Now, that's all I can say, except that I would like to sing, if you would like for me to sing. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. He went over the crowd with his voice, but the booze had left an indelible mark. Backstage, he told Cy Marsh, Fuck them. They don't want me. I don't want them. The aftershocks of Sammy's very busy 1972 would be continued to be felt for the rest of his life. A period we'll get into next week in our final episode of Sammy and Dino. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book, perfect for the holidays. 
at patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. You can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.